0: Well, please open with me in your Bibles to the Book of Ezekiel, chapter forty-eight. Ezekiel chapter forty-eight. Our text this morning is Ezekiel forty-eight thirty-five, but in a few moments we'll be reading from verses thirty through thirty-five. And as you're turning there, I want to thank you and commend you for engaging so thoughtfully and attentively, and with such great heart in this six-week series of which this is the last sermon a series on God's covenant and personal name Yahweh I pray that you are clinging to him more closely as your Lord as Joshua commanded uh, the people of Israel the Lord through Joshua to cling to Yahweh so maybe uh, that's our prayers that the Lord would have us to cling more to him as a result of our series so now let's look to Ezekiel 48 30 30 through 35 God's word says this, these shall be the exits of the city on the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah and the gate of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel on the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon and the gate of Iskatar and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher and the gate of Nephtali. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits and the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there." your favorite passage. Uh, presence is largely an underappreciated reality, but so much of what makes life life is the presence of other people. Losing your spouse may mean your house is no longer a home. It is not the same without them there, without them present. An IMAX theater concert is not the same as being there, even if your seat is much better effectively the camera that hovers around the band you want to be where the crowd is the people are i had one friend share with me about a bad dream uh, He was floating around in outer space and an orb kept speaking to him none of it was real your family's not real this is all there is that is a terrifying dream terrifying dream Then consider that no one would consider being alone forever in any kind of paradise. Paradise is either to include lots of people for an eternal good time or one person that you go really deep with, but not alone, no matter what you may have materially. Interestingly, isolation or solitary confinement is a form of psychological torture, soul torture. Interesting. Even a deserted island is okay if the right companion is there, if the right companion is present. Presence is an underappreciated reality. And presence is a largely underappreciated biblical theme. I don't mean God's universal presence as in the omnipresence of God, for God is everywhere, he's outside of space, but his personal communing and dwelling presence With his people. The presence goes largely unnoticed, but that's because this presence uh, is like the air of the Bible's story. It's to the Bible what air is to life. It's all over the place. And if the Bible is stitched together with many overlapping themes, then presence is one of those themes that sort of overlaps all of the themes. It's like an umbrella theme of sorts stretching from one side of the Bible in its earliest parts to the other side. When creation, God was present with his people, he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, his presence is what made it a good place. Eden was not a good place without the presence of God, and Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply and expand and spread the presence of God throughout the world. They were his little glory representatives, his glory reflectors. After they sinned, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, and they were banished from his presence and sent out from the garden. But God came to his people, he came to Abraham and he came to Abraham with a promise, I will be with you. And he came to Moses with the same promise, I will be with you. And he led his people through the wilderness and about by a a presence tent with a cloud over it to, to direct them as to where they should go, where he would be. When they settled in Jerusalem, God gave them instructions for a super tent, a temple, where God would dwell in the midst of his people in a special way. The temple came with a sacrificial system and all the rest so that sin could be dealt with and access to God would be possible. Trusting and treasuring the presence of God is what makes God's people identifiable as God's people, loving the Lord, their God, serving him only, seeking his presence, so listen to the way the psalmists prayed, Psalm 27.4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In Psalm 84.10, a familiar psalm, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Well, language like a personal relationship with God or experiencing God has fallen on hard times because of an emphasis at times on relationship to to the diminishing of the means to that relationship, the cross and faith. But this is not unbiblical language. It captures what God would have us to seek very nicely, a relationship with God, his presence. He wants to have a personal relationship with us for us to experience him and to desire to be in his courts for a day more than a thousand elsewhere. And his presence is life, and his absence is death. Now to Ezekiel. Here in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel writes to announce to a people under judgment of God's absence, and he comes with a promise as well of God's presence. For context, Ezekiel's Ezekiel's audience is almost exactly the same as Jeremiah's from last week. So it won't cover all the same ground, although Ezekiel, it is said, is more X-rated than Jeremiah is. We won't even touch on some of that. Parts, those parts of the, the book so remember last week's sermon and Ezekiel prophesies as one in exile so that's a difference Jeremiah prophesies before the exile Ezekiel is in exile when God calls him as a prophet but the exile is layered and not all of uh, Israel is yet under Babylonian captivity Ezekiel though is and in rebelling against God Israel is rejecting what she was made to enjoy the presence of God and so the presence of God as we'll see leaves her Leaves her. Israel, even though in a Babylonian captivity, is yet hardened in her sin. Well, one of my jobs here at DSC is to tag the sermons with topics every Sunday. So when you go on the website and you see a sermon and there are topics, I did that. So, uh, and one of those topics, one of those topics is tough texts. And uh, I've clicked those a number of times for Ryan. That was a tough text. Uh, I'm going to click that one for myself today after I get done here. Tough text. Today's text is most perplexing uh, of passages, that we've, the most perplexing of the passages we've explored in the series, and one of the trickiest in the Bible. But perplexing as it may be at first, as we'll see, it is as practical, as immediately practical as it is at first, perhaps obscure to us. And it's my prayer together that we together might say with the psalmist, a day in God's presence is better than a thousand elsewhere, and that we may know that the Lord is there, Yahweh Shema, that he may be Yahweh Shema to us. So what does it mean that the Lord is there? What does it mean the Lord is there? Well, first, the Lord is there in his new temple. The Lord is there in his new temple. You'll remember from our sermon from the book of Jeremiah that Israel is trusting in the temple for safety from God's wrath in a superstitious kind of way. Jeremiah 7.4, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For a Hebrew, saying something three times like that is more emphatic than saying it a thousand times. Three is it. Ezekiel is about why they shouldn't trust in the mere presence of God's physical temple. God's presence is what matters. That's what Ezekiel is about, the presence of God. And in this book, Ezekiel receives three temple visions in the first. And so we're going to look at each of these three visions under this first point. And uh, as we're getting used to now, the first point will be the longest of the three that we'll cover today. So in chapters 1 through 3, we have our first vision, our first vision. We know that Ezekiel is experiencing a vision from the first verse of the book. As I was among the exiles of Chabar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Ezekiel's is in exile, he sees visions of God. And what does he see? Verse 4 and following. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out from the north and a great cloud with brightness all around it. And fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. There were legs, their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. Each had a human face, and four had the face of a lion on the right side, and four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. Their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a a flash of lightning. That would qualify as a bad dream. Ezekiel sees a storm. And the storm, in the storm, he sees four flashing, flaming, flying creatures, each with four faces, three of them the faces of animals, and each of them darting about like lightning. That is a vision indeed. And he has wheels. It has wheels, verse 15. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. And these wheels had some serious rims. Verse 18 and 19, and their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims, I love all word awesome there, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around, and when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Very good. Uh, Some animals have crazy eyes where they can see all around them. I hate those animals. We should have eyes like that. Flies, I think, have... uh, Study to fly eyes, those are interesting. Well, this thing has eyes all around its wheels it 's the point it can see anywhere it can see everything, and they are good eyes i 'm sure and it has a ve- it 's a loud vehicle verse twenty four I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, the sound of tumult, like the sound of an army it 's a storm, it has wings it 's on fire it 's got seeing wheels it sounds like an army who is driving this vehicle verse 26 and above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in the appearance of sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance and there was brightness all around him such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of god and when i saw it i fell on my face and i heard the voice of one speaking This is Yahweh's transportation. This is Yahweh's ride, a flaming throne mobile. The creatures are cherubim, the same creatures that guarded Eden. You remember remember Isaiah's vision Isaiah 6, famous for those cherubim flying about. They're in the presence of God. And naturally, Ezekiel faints. And in the next chapter, we find out why why Yahweh is giving Ezekiel this vision. When Yahweh says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, Ezekiel says, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. His job is to proclaim the judgment of God, the judgment of God. And then in chapter 3, the Lord gives him something to eat. He'll need something to eat for this kind of work. Verse 1 through 3, "'Eat this scroll and go, speak to the house of Israel.' So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, "'Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, "'and fill your stomach with it.' "'Then I ate it, and it was sweet in my mouth, as sweet as honey.'" This is an unusual genre of literature, an unusual genre of literature. And these visions are part of what, a, what is called a, a part of a long dead genre called apocalyptic. Closest thing we might have in our day would be sci-fi, where you have a, a movie, for example, that is perfectly understandable. Its message is transparent. It may even be clearer than a, than, a, than a movie set in modern day context, but it is clothed in the garb of a different world, clothed in the garb of a different world. Now, if I had to guess, I'd say you didn't really understand the vehicle part. There are still some outstanding questions about what that was all about. Uh, but this, this eating the scroll part, you probably got. Why? Because you know the nature of a prophet. He speaks God's word. And you know enough about God's word. And you remember Psalm 119. It's like honey, right? So you get it. This prophet's to ingest God's word. And he's to speak God's word. It's to be sweet to him. It's obvious. Apocalyptic. And I would suggest that the meaning of any apocalyptic vision is, as a general rule, as straightforward. What we need is context. So we hang out and wait for it and we read carefully. We'll come back to this vision, but for now let's talk about Ezekiel's Ezekiel's ministry. He's a strange, strange, as we might expect, preacher of judgment. He uses many props and he uses drama at God's command. In chapter four, he builds a little scene to illustrate Babylon's siege on Jerusalem. He takes a brick. He like etches out the city of Jerusalem on it and then he sets up little camps and ramps and siege works and and launches an assault on the brick. And uh, people are watching this happen. What is this all about? It's to teach them. This is what God's going to do. It's over the top. This is what God's going to do to Jerusalem. He even sets up an iron wall between him and the brick to symbolize God's removal of himself from his people, an iron wall. I don't know how long that one lasted or how long he did that, but... The next one was, I'm almost sure, quite a bit longer. For 390 days, uh, he lay on his right side, and for 40 days, he lay on his left side. And everyone's watching this, and the point is uh, to reflect, to symbolize God's judgment on Israel and Judah, respectively. In chapter 5, God said, uh, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. I not know they had barbers back then. One third was burned in the city, and one third was struck with a sword, and one third was to be sent to the wind and That symbolized how Israel would be judged. one third would die from pestilence and famine, and a third by sword, and a third would be scattered. He's a funny preacher in chapter twelve. Ezekiel even dramatized a trip to, into exile. He prepared his bags for exile with perhaps some food. He dug through a hole in the, he dug a hole through the wall as if to escape, and then uh, left at dusk. And in full view of the people, and when they asked him, what are you doing, Ezekiel? He explained to them, this hasn't happened yet, but Jerusalem will be sacked. Jerusalem will be conquered. Jerusalem will be brought into exile, and he was enacting it. But the message is strange, obviously, but the message would have been profoundly clear. And it would have accompanied, and does in this book, dozens of chapters of clear judgment preaching what's the problem abominations is the problem Ezekiel 7 4 and my eye will not spare you nor will I have pity says the Lord but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst and if you want to reclaim that word abomination from that grossly misunderstood giant snowman uh, abominable snowman only read Ezekiel he says this word 93 times He will write into your memory and your mind the meaning of abomination. 93 mentions. He means the worship of idols and all that comes with that. The injustice to widows and the fatherless. Child sacrifice. These are abominations to God. And there is not much that is near universally abominable in our culture. There really isn't. But there are some things that are almost universally abominable. Including rape including uh, sex trafficking. There are other things that are near universally in the heart of our culture. Uh, Repudiated, abominable would be that when your face twists, when you hear about something on the news, that's the feeling of, of hearing about an abomination. Well, there are things that God finds abominable, which we don't, but we should as sinners. And the duty of the Christian life is to align our hearts and our feelings about sin and with God's word well God is against abominations and what's the punishment chapter 14 21 for thus says the Lord God how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment sword famine wild beasts and pestilence he is saying I'm going to make your life a horror movie A horror movie. These four judgments are like on a loop all the way through the book, including another one where he scatters them about. So that's the first vision. First vision, Ezekiel's call by God. In chapters 8 through 11, we see vision number two. And if vision number one was a bad dream, vision number two is an outright nightmare. It's a nightmare. In chapter 8, God gives him a tour of the temple, and he sees all kinds of scary things. There's an idol at the temple gate, a little statue of a human intended to protect the city from attack. They know the Lord their God is their God. He instructed them to build this temple, and they put a little statue to protect them from attack. It's called the image of jealousy in this vision, and that's because God is jealous for his name, and this competes for his worship. Ezekiel writes in 8-7, He brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And was it ever a hole in the wall? Go in, he says in verse 9, and see the vile abominations that they are committing there. And he did, and he found carvings on the wall of other gods in the inside of God's temple, the place of his presence represented on the earth. False worship gets worse as they dig around through the temple. Worse and worse and worse so that at the inner courts, the leaders of Israel are worshiping the sun, worshiping Babylonian gods. And therefore, Yahweh says in 8.18, I will act in wrath, my eye eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. And now, the really scary part. In chapter 10, we learn about why Yahweh is in a vehicle. And the vision clears up. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in the appearance like a throne. The man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court of the temple. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with a cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord, and the sound of the wings and the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks, verse 18, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. The Lord Yahweh has started his engine, and he is rolling out, as one commentator puts it. That's the right way to describe what he's doing in his vehicle. And this is surely one of the most serious moments in the Old Testament. One of the most serious moments. You know, the prophets speak often of, of this thing here as divorce. Because God is married to Israel and Israel to God. This is like a divorce. So we can linger for a moment on that imagery. Maybe you've experienced divorce. Maybe personally. Uh, maybe uh, as a child, your parents were divorced Or maybe a loved one, a dear friend, or a child of yours has been divorced. All all of the complexities aside that come with that. And the right and the wrong inside it. Because divorce never happens if there isn't sin somewhere, right? In a perfect world, marriages stay together. Isn't it always sad, though? Does not it hurt? Heartbreak? Loss? emptiness, I haven't been there, I had friends when I was in high school whose parents were divorced, and I remember laying in bed just walking down that path in my mind and couldn't fathom how hard that must be, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't deny the reality of the horror of divorce, and that's why this language is appropriate for what's happening here, horrifying, And now multiply that feeling of loss and death almost times infinity, and you have what this should feel like to Israel. With just cause on this day, God has served his papers, and it's already done. Yahweh is holy, his people are not, and they pretend he doesn't exist, so he's out. But remember how we said that the prophets come with several messages, Israel has sinned and God will judge? Well, that's all we've heard so far, but there's a third message the prophets come with, and he comes with it, and that is that God will restore. God will restore. And this, is, this brings us to our third vision. And this vision is a good vision. This vision, we could say, is a sweet dream. 40, verse 2, in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like the city to the south. This third vision is a vision of restoration in what Ezekiel describes as a structure like a city. A structure like a city. Ezekiel is taken up to a mountain and looking down on a structure like a city, which is almost certainly and is Jerusalem. There's no mountain next to Jerusalem. That's, what, that's why in part we know this is an apocalyptic vision. He's taking taken into a symbolic world out of himself. In the second vision, Ezekiel is given a tour of the temple in spiritual shambles. Like a, in the second vision, sorry, Ezekiel was given a tour of the temple in spiritual shambles, a dilapidated house, and God was moving out. And in this third vision, Ezekiel gets a tour of the new and future temple, a structure like a city, it fills the whole city on Yahweh's move-in day. Ezekiel 43, 1-7. And he led me to the gate. The gate facing east, and behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had uh, when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face, and as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing the east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, we're back at the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of my people of Israel forever." And the House of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. This is the exact inverse of his second vision, which was a nightmare. And his second vision was, the, if it was the worst thing he could imagine, this is the best thing he could imagine. The second vision was hellish, and this vision is truly heavenly. I think there's some rule out there that there's a percentage of any job, uh, that everyone's job that you just don't like, you've got to eat. Uh, maybe it's part of the job you're okay with and part of the job you love. Hopefully that's more than not. Well, Ezekiel's got parts of his job he hates and parts of his job he loves. Here's the part that he must love. The Lord says in Ezekiel 43.10, Describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them that the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and its entrances, that is the whole design. So what was the design that Ezekiel was to describe to the exiles? Let's take a look at the design for a few minutes. There right, are nine chapters here. I'm not going to read even most or even probably 80% of what's there, but I will summarize it. First, the entrances. There are 12 city gates, three at each point of the compass, each gate named after a tribe of Israel. That's the part we read when we first got here this morning at the beginning of the sermon. How about the shape of the temple? Its shape, the temple has precise measurements. Ezekiel meets a guy at the temple... He's a surveyor. He's got a, he's got a measuring tape of some kind. 40 verse 3. Behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing by the gateway. This guy takes him all through the temple, and for three entire chapters, all you get are measurements of different rooms and spaces and gates between things, inside things, the thickness of walls, all of it. The temple has a four-cornered shape measured by length, and by width, no height, by the way, 45.2, the square plot of 500 by 500 cubits shall be for the sanctuary, with 50 cubits for an open space around it. Perfect square. Let's check out the lighting, 43.2-5, and behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the earth shone with his glory, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God's glory fills the temple, and the temple lights up the world. God is the light. And finally, it's influence, the influence of this temple. The river flows from the temple, it begins as a trickle, but with each mile it gets deeper and wider so that it becomes impassable, a raging, raging river. And it's the source of life for everything it touches and reaches, which is the whole world. Ezekiel 47, 9, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. Verse 12, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Their leaves for healing. This structure is designed to communicate the sheer holiness of God and the mercy of God. His sheer greatness and his sheer grace. And part of that is his presence, that it communicates his presence. Verse 7 of 43. This is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of Israel forever. And the last line is the best part of the book and the climax of this vision and the book itself. The name of the city, calls this temple structure a city now, From that time on shall be, the Lord is there, Yahweh Shema. Now this is obviously great news. But for who? For whom is it great news? Who gets to be there for this? Right now Israel is in exile. She's stubborn and rebellious. God has promised that he would return to the temple, but there's no impurity there. The temple will not be defiled. If Israel returns from exile in her present spiritual condition, she will not experience this. In fact, she will not return from exile. How can God's people be reunited with God? How will we get from point A to point B here in this vision? How can this vision be hope for Israel who is hardened yet in her sin? Our second point will answer the question The Lord is there in his new temple, and the Lord is there with his new people. The Lord is there with his new people. What kind of people can do with God in this new temple? A new kind of people. Ezekiel 36 and 37 are all about that. And there we get some big guarantees from God. And while to that point Ezekiel was mostly judgment, there was a hint. There was a hint in Ezekiel so far that God's judgment was not irrevocable. Ezekiel 14, 22. But behold, the flicker of light during a spattering of judgment. For behold, some survivors will be left in it sons and daughters who will be brought out behold when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds you will be consoled and why would god do this well for his own good reasons he is highly highly motivated to fix god's people ezekiel thirty-six twenty-two. therefore say to the house of israel thus says the lord god it is not for your sake o house of israel that i am about to act but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. That line, know that I am the Lord, 72 times. Take a highlighter, He'll mark up half the book. 72 times he mentions this. God says here, I am about to act for my name. He's about to act, but what is he going to do? Here's what, the Lord will give them a new standing before him. He'll cleanse them. Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. The Lord will give them a new heart. Verse 26, And I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Remember that Jeremiah said about the heart, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is what they need. It's good news. The Lord will give them a new spirit, his spirit, verse 26 and 27. And the new spirit I will put in you and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And the Lord will lead them in a new exodus. Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. They'll come back. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. Verse 35, and they will say, this land was desolate, that was desolate, has become like the garden of Eden. It'll be paradise. And all this again so that, verse 36, the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. There's that line again. Salvation, salvation is God's doing it is god's doing. And since visions have a way of making a point by means of overkill, god gives ezekiel vision just to make sure this is all really clear. Spirit takes him into the middle of a valley filled with bones. So, I've always just imagined like a guy standing in a valley with a pile of bones. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to overhaul that vision in my own head. How about a giant valley? I don't know. Maybe some research would would uh, turn up a location that could have been in mind here. But just imagine Sandy is to the volcanoes, filled with bones, bones, dry bones. It means they're long dead. Okay, the Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And he answers, oh, Lord, God, you know. Which, by the way, is a great answer if God asks you a question. That you, uh, oh, Lord, you know the answer. <laughs> um, I don't know. It seems like it's supposed to be funny to me, and it is. It's a really good answer. Um, So here's what happens next. God says, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord... Ezekiel does it, he preaches the word of God and the dry bones come to life. Flesh attaches itself, they stand up and they live. So I prophesied, he says, as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. That's why I say a valley, really a valley, an exceedingly great army, dry bones to flesh and blood. And what does it mean? Here's what it means. God will raise Israel from their grave. Or raise him from the dead. He will fix Israel. And my friends, like Israel, we do not need good advice. We do not need therapy. We do not need a makeover, a spiritual makeover. We need resurrection. We need spiritual life. Not to be improved, but to be created spiritually. We're not spiritually handicapped, troubled, or deficient, or merely broken. We are spiritually dead. We cannot achieve a relationship with God. We can only be and must only be raised from the dead by God himself and receive that work from him by faith. So we know what God will do and we know why he'll do it, but how? How is he going to get this done? One more thing about God's new people. He makes with them a new covenant. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-four: "'My servant David shall be king over them. "'They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob.'" They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. And there it is again. God doesn't leave undone his promise to Abraham that his descendants would fill the earth. Or to David, that his descendant, a son of his, would sit on his throne eternally. In this new covenant, he makes those promises possible. This new covenant is nothing less than the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus himself in the upper room. The covenant of his body and shed blood. The covenant that requires and entails his death for sinners as our high priest. Our sacrificial lamb. And without this new covenant, all the other new things God does aren't possible or they can't even save a new heart and a perfect life without the full forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ does not put us before God in right standing Christ's body and blood do. And all this is a package and it's the cost of reconciling God with people. So if you're a Christian, all this was done for you, you were dry bones. This whole room would be packed with dead old dry bones. And in as much as we're filled with the spirit this morning, God has made it to come alive. Spiritually, flesh and blood. And if you're not a Christian, you must flee to Christ for salvation. Flee to the presence of God by means of the cross. God says that you are far away, but He will bring you, can bring you near to Himself by the blood of Christ. The book of Hebrews speaks of going before God's throne, his holy of holiest place with confidence by the blood of Jesus. And you, though alienated from God and far off, can be brought near because of the blood of Jesus shed for you on the cross, received by faith. Believe on him. So what was wrong with the old people? Everything. And what did God do? He replaced everything. He replaced everything. Everything. Now, if the new covenant is here, and if the spirit is here, then where, oh, where is the temple? Where is God's temple? The Lord is there in his new creation, in his new creation. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. End of the Bible, and end of that last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 21. I want you to see this with your own eyes, how Ezekiel's temple vision is fulfilled in the person and in the presence of Jesus Christ. Well, like Ezekiel, uh, Revelation is a, is a difficult book to grasp. But Ezekiel has several apocalyptic visions. Revelation, that's all it is. It's an apocalyptic vision. In fact, Revelation draws on Ezekiel more than any other book in the Old Testament. And Ezekiel has been called by one commentator, the Revelation of the Old Testament. Old Testament's book of Revelation. There are even some parallel, very, very closely aligned parallel passage. There's even a scroll eating scene in the book of Revelation. The difference is John eats it and it's honey to his taste, but it's bitter to his stomach. And the point of the vision is that uh, the lamb needs to open the scroll first. I'm going to read several sections, verses throughout uh, chapter 21 and 22, roughly in chronological order. And I want you to listen for echoes from the book of Ezekiel. Revelation 21, 1 through 5, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. This is a passage about all things, all things new, the earth, a new earth. Jerusalem is a city, but it's also the bride, Christ's bride, which is the church, God's people. In verse 10, John says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. At ring a bell, it's, 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 it should sound like Ezekiel, high mountain, looking at Jerusalem, 21 verse 12 through 14 It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates of the names of the were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb That should also sound familiar and now you have the addition of the 12 apostles of the lamb on the foundations signifying the completeness of the people of God. God's people are all his and one and bought and united to him inseparably written into the foundation. Remember that measuring guy verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls and the city lies four square its length and width its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. The city was perfect. The Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. And here we have a perfect cube. And what about the river? Chapter 21, verse one through two. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Interesting. Here are those trees for healing. In Ezekiel, it was so that the nations would know that He's the Lord. And now the nations know Him as Lord in this new creation, they're a part of His people. And where does the city's light come from? Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. And by its light, the nations will walk. This should sound just like Ezekiel's temple. But where is the temple? Where's the temple? Now you may have noticed that when we read the uh, temple vision, if you were to read it straight through it, you'd notice it's very hard to build if you're perceptive. Uh, uh, you would notice that there's no height measurements given, no vertical measurements. Sacrifices are being offered, which if, this is, if built on this side of the cross would be a contradiction with uh, the book of Hebrews. Some things are truly impossible to build in terms of geography. The foundations are straight lines without respect to geographical features of this m- square mile land. The river starts with a trickle but becomes an impassable flowing river. It started in the temple. Interestingly, Israel didn't even try to build it when they came back from the land. But none of this is a problem. Remember, Ezekiel is an apocalyptic vision. It's a symbolic world that he's really seeing these things, but these things have reference in the real world that don't look the same. They represent things. And in Revelation, is only Ezekiel 2.0. So where is the temple? Revelation 21, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God and the the Almighty and the Lamb. There was no temple, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And this is where we say, aha, and a number of things should be falling into place as we reflect on our Bibles. This is why John could say, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That word dwelt, tabernacled, he was a temple among us. That's why Jesus could say to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and three days later I'll raise it up. And John would interpret that as speaking about the temple of his body and the resurrection in fulfillment of scripture. That's why Nicodemus should have understood Jesus' words when Jesus said, unless one is born again, made alive, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It's not a reference to baptism, being born of water. That's a reference to Ezekiel, cleansed with water and given a new spirit. Jesus could even tell his disciples that it is to their advantage that he would leave so that he can send his spirit. For Jesus is Yahweh among us, and the spirit is Yahweh in us. And it's because of the spirit that Paul can say to Christians concerning sexual immorality, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And he can say to the church about their divisions, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? My friends, we the church are the very temple of God. When we meet and sing praises to him, we are filled with his spirit, enjoying perfect access to him. Dry bones we were, but flesh and blood, spiritual life we are, filled with his spirit. Ezekiel had a vision of a beautiful temple where God would dwell among his people. And Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and his spirit is God in us even now, and one day in a place called Yahweh Shema, the new creation, the Lord is there, we will see his face, and we will hear the words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And so until that day we pray and sing the words of the Psalmist who wrote in Psalm seventy two, nineteen, Blessed be the glorious, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for apocalyptic visions in the Bible. They confuse us and they make us scratch our heads. But when they're understood and when we understand them by the light of your word, they make more clear to us the things you would have to say than we can get in any other way. And So you're wise to give these visions to Ezekiel and to John. So that we might look forward with eager expectancy to the day when we see your face face to face. We see the Lord Jesus. And even though we have your spirit now, when there will be no sin in that new creation. Nothing defiled. Nothing evil. Sin will even be purged from us and we will stand before you righteous with your spirit to enjoy your presence for all eternity. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.